everyone, and welcome to the History of Tammany Hall, Episode 9, The First Boss. Thanks for joining us once again. When we last saw Aaron Burr, his political career was at something of a low point. Despite a rising national profile, Burr suffered a series of bitter defeats in 1795 and 1796. A poor showing in New York's gubernatorial election of 1795 demonstrated the weakness of Burr's political position back in his home state. Though he was nominally Jefferson's running mate in the presidential election of 1796, many Southern Democratic Republicans refused to support Burr, and he finished an embarrassingly distant fourth in the final electoral college tally. This resulted in a lingering sense of distrust between Burr and Jefferson, Madison, and Monroe, the powerful Virginians who led the Democratic-Republican Party nationally. Finally, the Federalist victory in New York in 1796 meant that the party regained control of the state legislature. That body was responsible for choosing the state's representatives in the U.S. Senate, in these days back before direct election to the upper house. Unsurprisingly, the Federalists did not name Burr for a second term, and he was replaced by Philip Schuyler, the father-in-law of his old rival Alexander Hamilton. Out of a job and in pretty dire financial straits, Burr had to find a way to pick himself up off the ground and rebuild his political career. This was the context in which Aaron Burr first became involved with the Tammany Society. Some later commentators have described Burr as Tammany's first boss. This is clearly anachronistic, and you'll note the question mark in today's episode title. The idea of a political machine revolving around the will of a single, all-powerful boss really didn't exist at this early stage. Burr was no tweed. What's more, Burr himself was never even a member of Tammany, and there's no indication that he ever personally attended any of the society's meetings. Still, with memories of the raucous Democratic-Republican societies fresh in his mind, Burr was quite far-sighted about the role that an organization like Tammany could play in the early American political system. Beginning in the late 1790s, he was able to con assume control of the society by placing his closest personal allies in key leadership positions. Let's dive in and take a closer look at how this process played out. Out of office and deep in debt, former Senator Aaron Burr returned to New York City to restart his law practice. Still only 40 years old, Burr's ambition remained undimmed. As he reflected on how to start, restart his stalled career, a few lessons from the past few years likely weighed on his mind. First, it was clear that Burr had some work to do to shore up his standing in New York State. The disappointing results in the 1795 governor's race made it clear that he did not really have a reliable base of grassroots support in his home state. Second, the embarrassing outcome of the presidential election of 1795 made it clear that Burr couldn't depend on the kindness of the Virginians who ran the Democratic-Republican Party. 
he would only realize his national ambitions by making himself indispensable to the party and gaining some form of leverage over the Jefferson cohort. Ultimately, these two issues were intimately related. For all their strength below the Mason-Dixon line, the Democratic-Republicans had made little progress in the North outside of Pennsylvania. New York, with its finely poised balance between Hamiltonian Federalists and Clintonian Anti-Federalists, was as competitive as any state in the Union. A Democratic-Republican victory in the Empire State would carry Jefferson over the line and into the White House in the upcoming election of 1800. If Burr could deliver this prize, he would not be so easily shunted aside by the Virginians. Of course, this was all easier said than done. For Burr, the solution lay with New York City's increasingly numerous and politically vocal urban middling sort of artisans, workmen, small merchants, and tavern keepers. New York City's population was not yet large enough to dominate state politics. However, a strong showing among the city's artisan class, coupled with Clintonite strength in the rural Hudson Valley, would likely be enough to swing New York into the Democratic-Republican column. Back in 1789, Hamilton himself had recognized the political potency of New York's middling sort when he had rallied them in support of the ratification of the Constitution. However, in the following decade, this group had become largely disenchanted with the Federalist project. On issue after issue, from the war in France to the foundation of the National Bank, New York's middle and working classes tended to find themselves on the anti-administration side of the ledger. The more appealing aspects of Hamilton's program, such as protective tariffs to allow American industries to develop, had, as yet, borne relatively little fruit. At the same time, these men were not exactly natural bedfellows with the Southern Republican leadership. As tradesmen who hoped to expand their markets both in North America and abroad, they did not share Jefferson's romantic agrarianism and aversion to commerce. What's more, many of New York's working men were instinctually anti-slavery. As one orator at a Tammany Long Talk put it, quote, a fellow man ought never to be degraded to the condition of a slave, end quote. Still, this anti-slavery sentiment was often not due to high-minded humanitarianism, but rather from a fear that an influx of unpaid labor would drive down wages in New York. On balance, then, New York's artisans and small-scale tradesmen did not really have a natural home in, Amer in America's emerging political system. They were New York City's key swing constituency, the soccer moms or NASCAR dads of their day. Burr, with his sterling Republican credentials and commitment to commercial growth, fancied himself the natural tribune for this community, and, by the late 1790s, he identified the Tammany Society as an ideal vehicle for mobilizing them to the Democratic-Republican cause. From its founding, Tammany was vocally opposed to New York's so-called aristocracy, 
that small group of wealthy families who dominated politics in the Empire State. This made Tammany a natural home for those members of the middling sort who practiced what historian Sean Wilentz has called artisanal republicanism. Tammany's anti-federalist leanings became more pronounced over the course of the 1790s. As we've seen, the society was a hotbed of pro-French sentiment from the start of the Revolution. Though Tammany started as a nonpartisan organization, its Federalist membership had dwindled to a small minority by the start of the Adams administration. Burr was hardly alone in recognizing Tammany's potential as a force in anti-Federalist politics. By this time, the Tammany Society had relocated to a new meeting space at the Long Room at Martling's Tavern on Nassau Street. Though this was still more or less on the outskirts of the city, the tavern became a popular meeting point for New York's politically engaged artisans and shopkeepers. The venue soon gave Tammany's members a new nickname, Martling Men, though Federalist critics soon took to calling the building the Pigpen. Some of the most ambitious young members of New York's leading families were regularly found at Martling's Tavern. Clintons, Livingstons, Van Rensselaers, Van Cortlands, Roosevelts, Pierponts, and Van Nesses all joined up with Tammany in the early years, clearly vying for the support of an organization known for its attacks on the political aristocracy. Edward Livingston, whose good looks gave him the name Beau Ned, was the much younger brother of the powerful Chancellor Robert Livingston. He was a regular attendee at Tammany meetings. At one memorable dinner in 1796, he was the subject of nine glowing toasts. Governor George Clinton's nephew, the dashing, intelligent, and haughty DeWitt Clinton, was even more intimately involved in Tammany. He joined the society in its early days and at one point held the position of scribe. This was the start of a long and fraught relationship with the Tammany Society. Don't worry, we'll have plenty more to say on DeWitt Clinton in future episodes. In the end, however, Burr outmaneuvered his rivals and placed himself at the helm of the Tammany Society. He was able to do this despite never becoming a member of Tammany and, in all likelihood, never setting foot in Martling's Tavern. The key to Burr's success was his ability to control Tammany through a number of loyal friends and protégés. For years, contemporaries had noted Burr's knack for uh, picking up faithful acolytes. As far back as the 1780s, Hamilton was dismissively writing about Burr and his amoral myrmidons carrying out their master's every whim. To be fair, some of Burr's supporters were major figures in their own right. In the last episode, for example, we mentioned that Marinus Willett, a war hero, prominent anti-federalist, and future mayor of New York City, had helped promote Burr's gubernatorial candidacy back in 1795. However, Burr generally liked to rely on subordinates whose loyalty and discretion could always be counted on. These followers became known as Burr's Little Band, by the late 1790s, he had installed several of these allies in key leadership positions within the Tammany Society. 
In the words of one modern biographer, these men would do anything for the colonel, and everything was what he had them do. The most influential member of the little band was a figure we have not yet discussed. Matthew L. Davis was a moderately successful businessman and newspaper editor in New York. However, it was as a political organizer that he found his true calling. Fiercely loyal to Burr, Davis was the consummate backroom operator and dealmaker. As the Grand Sachem, or leader of the Tammany Society, Davis exhibited many of the features that would characterize later Tammany politicians. Rumors of financial impropriety followed Davis throughout his career. As Jerome Mushkat, an astute historian of New York politics, put it, Davis was, quote, a man who could never resist a shady deal or a dishonest dollar, a man whose political acumen was constantly available for sale to the highest bidder, end quote. Yet that political acumen should not be underestimated. Davis had a remarkable talent for organization, and he has been credited with some major political innovations. He was a master of getting his chosen candidates nominated, and, above all, he recognized the value of organizing on a ward-by-ward basis so that Tammany could operate in all quarters of the city. Davis was skilled at manufacturing public opinion. In one New York election, a series of seemingly spontaneous and unrelated demonstrations were held in support of the Democratic-Republican ticket over a series of nights in different parts of the city. It was only discovered later that these enthusiastic meetings had all been planned and attended by Davis and a pair of his close associates. Besides Davis, key members of Burr's little band included the lawyer William B. Van Ness, brothers John and Robert Swartout, and Burr's own stepson, John Prevost. Burr helped ensure that these and other followers emerged as powerful leaders within the Tammany Society. Like Davis, many of them earned reputation for rapacious corruption. Yet, for all their mercenary traits, the members of the little band were genuine in their attachment to their chief. In 1804, both Davis and Van Ness accompanied Burr to New Jersey and served as his seconds in the fateful duel with Hamilton. Van Ness even served a brief stint in jail for refusing to answer a grand jury's questions on the incident. Even after Burr's fall from grace, many of his followers remained loyal. Van Ness published a long pamphlet defending his former boss. Davis spent years trying to restore Burr's reputation. He wrote the first full-length biography of Aaron Burr, producing a predictably fawning portrait of his subject. As Burr's executor, Davis earned the enmity of later historians when he burned much of his old boss's correspondence after his death in 1836. The Burrites remained a powerful and coherent faction within the Tammany Society for decades. As late as the 1830s, it was common for transcripts of Tammany meetings to note, quote, the old Burr faction still active, end quote. Aaron Burr returned to the New York State Assembly in 1797 with the strong support of the Tammany Society. This seems like quite a step down for the former U.S. Senator, 
but the new post in the state legislature allowed Burr to build up his grassroots base of support. Though the Democratic Republicans were in the minority in Albany, Burr skillfully built alliances with upstate Federalists. They helped him pass bankruptcy reform legislation and anti-slavery measures. These were positions intended to curry favor with New York's middling sort, and Burr quickly became known as the Tammany Assemblyman. Burr's most ambitious maneuver from this period involved the formation of a new banking institution in New York. In the 1790s, the Federalists controlled a virtual banking monopoly in the state. As we discussed back in Episode 3, Alexander Hamilton and his allies had established the Bank of New York back in the 1780s. Like the National Bank of the United States, the Bank of New York tended to favor the interests of large-scale merchants who were among the most loyal Federalists in the city. Small businessmen and independent artisans, the men who formed the backbone of the Tammany Society, were often overlooked. Access to financing and credit ran along sharply delineated class lines in these days. In the words of one writer from the period, quote, A president of a bank was a grandee of the first order, and a cashier ranked with the ancient order or priesthood. A mechanic never ventured to ask for a discount in those days without some merchant as a patron and friend, and then the loan was obtained as a special favor. End quote. Federalist control of the banking system had real political ramifications. Merchants who vocally supported the Democratic Republicans could be punished by seeing their paper rejected when they most needed cash. What's more, banks could effectively control access to the ballot. Remember that New York's state constitution at the time contained restrictive property qualifications for voting. Only men who owned property worth at least 100 pounds, for example, were eligible to vote for governor. The Federalist-controlled bank could determine who would have access to the credit necessary to acquire this amount of property. It's unsurprising, then, that New York's Democratic Republicans, including many prominent Tammanyites, had long dreamed of establishing a rival bank, which could extend credit on favorable terms to friendly constituencies. In particular, such a bank could facilitate the formation of tontines, in which groups of less wealthy citizens could borrow money and collectively purchase enough property to satisfy the suffrage requirements. In years to come, this practice would effectively allow Tammany's members to circumvent the state constitution's property restrictions. In a famous incident from 1801, 39 poor Democratic Republicans purchased a single house in New York City's Fifth Ward. As property owners, all 39 men were now eligible to vote. Perhaps fearing this kind of behavior, Hamilton and his allies in the state legislature had, for years, uh, stymied efforts to grant a charter for a new bank outside of the Federalist monopoly. Of all things, it was the yellow fever epidemic of 1798 which presented Burr with the opportunity to break the back of this opposition. Yellow fever was essentially an annual occurrence in New York at the time, yet the 1798 outbreak was particularly brutal. 
In a city of only 35,000, the epidemic took the lives of more than 2,000 New Yorkers, including Burr's old friend, the eloquent anti-federalist Melanchthon Smith. Vendors could be seen hawking coffins on street corners, though the less well-off were buried in mass graves on the outskirts of town, beneath what is now Washington Square Park. The epidemic highlighted the sorry state of New York's water supply. Acting decisively, Burr made a proposal in the state assembly to charter a body, to be known as the Manhattan Company, which could build a reservoir and aqueducts to deliver clean drinking water from the Bronx River down to Lower Manhattan. The plan met with broad support, and the legislature soon granted the Manhattan Company its charter, However, at the last minute, Burr inserted a broad amendment into the charter which permitted the company to invest any surplus capital that it might have on hand. Though few Federalists took note of this provision at the time, it effectively allowed the new Manhattan Company to operate as a bank. And that's exactly what it did. The bank of the Manhattan Company, with Burr sitting on the board of directors, first opened its doors at 40 Wall Street in September 1799. The Democratic-Republicans now had their bank, and with it, a powerful tool to extend the franchise among their supporters. And, as an added benefit, Burr had just given himself an unparalleled opportunity to dole out patronage and financial favors. I'll just add a quick epilogue to this story. The Manhattan Company did very little to provide New York with clean drinking water. The city would have to wait until the 1840s for decent aqueducts to be completed. The uh, Manhattan Company's banking business, on the other hand, thrived. Though, throughout the 19th century, the company maintained a water tank in its Wall Street office in order to protect its charter. In the 1920s, the company built a beautiful skyscraper on 40 Wall Street, the site of its first office. In 1955, the Manhattan Company merged with Chase to form the Chase Manhattan Bank. In time, this became J.P. Morgan Chase. So, if any of you listeners have a Chase Bank account, you can, if you're so inclined, say that you're doing business with Aaron Burr. Okay, let's leave things there for now. Uh, we've seen how Burr had, through his little band, turned Tammany into a powerful tool to further both his personal ambitions and the broader interests of the Democratic-Republican Party in New York State. This would make Burr once again an indispensable figure on the national stage. As we'll see, this would have a major impact on one of the most important presidential elections in American history. All right, in the meantime, please follow the show on Twitter and Instagram, or feel free to shoot me an email at TammanyHallPodcast at gmail.com. Also, it'd be really helpful if you could rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. That gets the show out there to new listeners. All right, well, thanks for listening. <laughs>